You've always been looking for something. That something that makes you more than the person you're living as. More into the person you were created to be. What others see as mundane, you see as magnificent. You catch a glimpse of something new and it becomes something significant. It's that something extra that keeps you up at night. You dream, you imagine, you envision what your life might be. You are gifted and passionate. Add God's purpose to this and watch what he can build. Who is the prodigy in you? Within our words, an unseen power is set in motion. The tongue is a small thing, but like a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. Once spoken, our words begin blazing a trail in the hearts and lives of those around us. One kind word can demolish guilt. It can inspire hope. But the same words have also embraced hatred and executed innocence. Once spoken, our words scorch through feelings and emotions on a level that only they can produce. Your words set a chain of events beyond your control of which you will never know. One word can destroy beliefs, harden hearts, cultivate hatred. But they can also demonstrate faith, display forgiveness, and nurture love. The power of life and death lies in a single word. And we, in the image of God, have this power in one word. Well, today as Jesus continues his startup, he's going to talk about authenticity. And he wanted his community to be really good with words. And there are so many ways we are not good with words. Sometimes, like that last song, we need somebody to encourage us as people pleasers to actually be brave enough to say we're disappointed. Brave enough to say we're sad. Brave enough in a business conversation or a relational conversation to give the last 10% of what's really going on and be brave enough to risk the relationship. Others of us don't have that problem at all. That song is the worst thing we can hear this morning. Oh, they stumble out all the time. Let me tell you, the words are falling out of my mouth way too often. And Jesus wanted his community to really understand and diagnose the connection between the mouth and the heart. I mean, haven't you had regrets? Like, maybe daily, if not weekly? Why did I say that? Why was I so defensive? The emotions got so high in that conversation that the word divorce came out of my lips. I got so frustrated at my teenager that I actually said, you're such a disappointment to me. Oh, why did I get so amped up? Why did I mess up here? And Jesus has this fascinating diagnosis on how to deal with the real problem of our tongue that can be incredibly helpful. I remember we had a a family gathering, I don't know, two or three years ago. And the family gathering, we were playing games. We were having a whole lot of fun playing games, playing euchre, uh, playing different games that night. And then I often do a get-to-know-you type thing. I say, everybody give me a number. And I flipped through this book of questions. I said, all right, question is, did you ever have a nickname growing up? Somebody starts off, oh, yeah, my nickname was such and such. Somebody else says, oh, my nickname. And we're kind of laughing together. I said, well, my nickname was Flipper because I had such big shoes when I was on the soccer team. Flipper? Yeah, Flipper because of my big flippers. And it got to my son, Javen. Hey, Javen, did you have a nickname? Eh, not really. 
Oh, that's fine. We can give you a different question if you want. He said, well, let me think about it for a second. He's like, well, Dad did call me mumbler for three years. I had totally forgotten. Man, everybody left that day, and I came in his room. I said, buddy, let's talk about it. I am so sorry. I said, tell me what happened. And then I sort of remembered it. This is like six years ago at the time. Uh, I was trying to teach Javen how to articulate on the phone when he was like six or seven. Alice in Wonderland had just come out, and I remember Johnny Depp in that movie kept saying, mumbler, mumbler. So as I was trying to t- teach Javen how to speak articulately on the phone, I said, you don't want to be a mumbler. And man, that stuck for a decade. And man, he was so gracious to forgive me and for me to apologize and try and take back an unintentional word that caused damage. But see, we think in general that a mouth problem is a mouth problem. I just need to work harder to control my tongue. I just need to double down on the effort to to think about what I'm saying. But Jesus has a fascinating diagnosis that's very different from that. Jesus says that a mouth problem is actually a heart problem. And that change is going to be really, really heart work. You're going to have to change some things in your heart in order to deal with what's coming out of your mouth. It's an internal problem, not an external one. So I'll give you a couple of reasons. Because if Jesus is right, our ability to be authentic about what's going on really is going to require us to go deeper into our soul to get to the bottom of the issue. So three reasons. Reason number one, Jesus says that our words are like fruit that are connected to deeper roots. He says, a bad tree, meaning bad root, will produce bad fruit. A good root doesn't produce bad fruit. So if you're seeing good fruit come out of your mouth, it's because you've got a good root. And if you've got bad fruit coming out of your mouth, it's actually because under the surface is where the roots are. You need to not just work harder at controlling your tongue. You actually need to do some digging. And dig down deep and look under the ground as to what is driving your words. Give an example. I've used this example before, but I'll apply it in this situation. There's a part of your brain that holds your emotions. It's actually a very small part of the brain. And so we are, as emotional beings, can only hold so much emotion. Think of this like an emotional cup. At the top of the emotional cup, what comes out of your mouth, your attitudes, your actions, your words... But if you start looking under the surface, the reason I said that, the reason I was so defensive is because I actually felt guilty that I actually had done some of it. I was defensive because I didn't want to admit that I was partially to blame. If we dig a little bit deeper, we say, you know, the reason I said that is because I'm fearful. I got so amped up in that disciplined conversation with my son or daughter because I'm fearful. If I don't nip this in the bud, they're going to keep rebelling for the next 20 years. And I brought all of 20 years of energy to bear in this five-minute conversation. Fear was the root. But if I look under the fear, the reason I got so ticked off is because I feel like, honey, you and I have had this conversation for 10 years, and I'm fearful it's never going to change. And that's why I'm getting increasingly more and more emotional and angry about this is because I'm fearful that this dance that I don't like is never going to change. But under that fear is anger. Whenever you feel angry, you need to keep digging. Because under anger is often hurt and disappointment. And hurt and disappointment almost always comes from the root of unmet needs. I felt disrespected. I felt unappreciated. I really wanted comfort, and I didn't feel comforted. I felt fixed. 
And when you get down to the root, you start having a real conversation about what's really driving your behaviors, what's really driving your mouth. And so when you start seeing fruit come out, it's time to start digging down and find some roots. Now, the Bible has an even more deeper explanation than this. The Bible says that there are deeper drives that drive your anger and your fear and and your guilt. What's unique about the message of the Bible is the Bible says that when you put the God of grace at at the core of your being, if that's the soil you rest in, that soil humbles you because it says everything you do wrong is far worse than you can imagine. So bad that God himself had to come and die for it. Deeply, deeply humbling. Now, how's that practical? When somebody, your spouse, your son, your daughter, a, a, a boss, a colleague, brings something to your attention and you're rooted in the grace of God from the Bible, you get defensive for a second and then you, you, you root yourself in grace and say, you know what, Jesus died for a lot of stuff I did. This might be one of those things. I'm open to criticism because I was humbled by the cross. But also the cross, the main message of the Bible, is that you are fully accepted by God, past, present, future. Not based on what you do, but based on what God did. And if you're rooted in that, then what happens is the conversation you're having is not about your identity. Because I feel acceptable when I perform well. I feel shameful when I perform bad. When that is happening, you're actually rooted in something besides the God of the Bible. You're rooted in your status. You're rooted in your performance. Have you ever brought too much amperage to a parenting moment? I have. You need to look at the roots. And the roots are most always... It's not just about your child's disobedience. It's not just about the employee's poor performance. What does it say about me that my child would do this? Oh. I feel bad about me that I have kids that disobey and this is looking bad on me. That means you're rooted in status and your performance as a parent is really the ground you're rooted in, which makes it impossible to parent well because you're not parenting for what they did wrong and applying discipline accurately. You're punishing them for making you and your reputation and your performance feel bad. If instead you're fully accepted by God, whether you have obedient children or disobedient children, when you have a great quarter or a bad quarter, it brings a peace that you can still discipline, you can still speak truth, but it's not coming from a place of anxiety. Look for the deeper drives within us. And the reason we've got to do this hard work, and it's hard work to find the roots, is because words matter. We're often told that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But it's not true. Words will stick with you for decades. In fact, they did an experiment. This is a doctor's experiment. has been done over and over and over again. Of the power of words, positive words to heal and give life, lack of words, and negative words. And look at how they act out, not just in a spiritual sense, not just in a psychological sense. Look how they act out in an actual physical sense in this experiment. Let's watch. Dr. Emoto has conducted another interesting experiment. He placed rice into three glass beakers and covered it with water. And then every day for a month, he said, thank you to one beaker. You're an idiot to the second. And the third one, he completely ignored. 
After one month, the rice that had been thanked began to ferment, giving off a strong, pleasant aroma. The rice in the second beaker turned black. And the rice that was ignored began to rot. Dr. Emoto thinks that this experiment provides an important lesson, especially with regard to how we treat children. We should take care of them, give them attention, and converse with them. Indifference does the greatest harm. So it's a fascinating experience that we are built to have words of life put into us, and not talking doesn't work, talking negatively doesn't work, and the stakes are so high that we are molding, destroying, corrupting the things we love if we don't learn how to speak words of life. But that's going to require us to do the really hard work of digging down. Now Jesus gives more insights here. He goes on and says that words are the currency of what the heart treasures. So when... When you see words coming out, it's currency that allows you to track back not just to the root, but to what you really treasure. A good man, out of the good treasure in his heart, brings forth good. In other words, all the words do is they reach into your treasure box in your heart and just throw the cash out. And so whatever's coming out of your tongue shows you what's being treasured in your heart. An evil man just reaches into the evil treasure in his heart, and that's where his currency comes from. Now, Jesus, again, is a Jewish rabbi, and he's speaking here about a phrase that's only used one other time in the Bible. The book of Deuteronomy, a series of sermons given by Moses. When Moses says, when you serve God, when he's the core of what you treasure, his grace, his forgiveness, his identity, it's out of his, not your good works, his good works, out of his good treasure... You're able to speak to others. You're able to understand and live life. Let me play out and show you how this gets real practical. So of the many areas that I lose control of my tongue, of many areas that I say things I don't want to say, certainly having a son eight and a half years old with autism is infuriating. It, it is like the, the stress and the gauntlet and the, it's, it it's can't be almost described what it, <laughs> the challenge is. So a lot of things come into my head, and many of them come out of my mouth. And here I am sometimes yelling at, being frustrated by a child who doesn't even know that I'm mad, actually, let alone know they did anything wrong. So I could say, hey, I just realize autism's tough and get used to it. Or I could say, hey, I need to work harder to control my tongue. And all those are true. But they don't go deep enough to the real problem. See, Jesus is saying... Chad, why are you so mad at this thing and not something else? Why does this frustrate you more than something else? What are you really treasuring? So sometimes I pull out a journal, sometimes I'm praying, but what I'm really doing is going on a treasure hunt. And some of the things I treasure that work really well for me in my life, really well for me in in my business, I treasure productivity. I treasure going fast. I treasure being efficient. Those are good things, not bad things, right? But when those are my highest treasures, and I get put in a situation with somebody who's inefficiently serving me at a restaurant, inefficiently driving in the fast lane, (laughs) 
seven years of potty training and he's still not potty trained, productivity. The anger, the frustration that comes out of me is much higher. Why? Because I'm not treasuring the ministry of presence, being with my son, guiding him no matter what pace he goes at. I don't treasure that as much as productivity. I don't treasure really training my son and daughter of why it's okay to make mistakes and and how to operate grace within that. No, no, I treasure my reputation. If people find out you did this, they'll know that I'm not the kind of parent I should be. And that's why Jesus' diagnosis here is so fascinating. It's because it helps you go much deeper into your heart. What's the real treasure that's driving this? And when we began our church, we felt like the Bible had such a unique diagnosis of the problem and solution that what God treasured was called the gospel. And the gospel was the power to change people, more than just more of your own good efforts. And so because we treasured that, Jesus said right before he left earth, and again, we believe that even if you don't, but we believe he left, came to earth, and then he left, and we believe he said that the, the church should be about creating environments for people to explore who don't believe the way you do, and creating environments for people to be discipled or be equipped in understanding what it means to live like a Christ follower. So out of what God treasured, we have been so impacted by that message. It's so changing us that we so treasured Jesus, and we so treasured the Bible, that all of our values, all of our strategies, all of our missions flowed out of our, our, what we say flowed out of what we treasured. And because God treasured people and service, we said one of our values is everybody helps out. Because God treasures un, uh, unconditional love, we wanted to have a mission statement called, <laughs> we, you can comfortably connect to God through the Bible and a community of growing Christ followers. What we said, what we did, how we did it. I was at a conference this week, and several people were saying, tell me about your church. And I said, well, we do two different services on the weekend. Yeah, like a traditional contemporary? No, no, like, like exploring, equipping, and I, I deliver most times 100% different messages. This series is the one unique time of the year I don't do that. And I said, we have two different bands, totally different music. One, we do communion and prayer and, and, and singing together. You stand up and you sing and you worship. And the other one, you can sit down. It's mostly music you'd hear on the radio that bring up spiritual themes. We have two different bands and two different production sheets. And every one of the pastors listen to me like, why would you do that? That sounds like a lot of work. That sounds like a lot of effort. That sounds like a lot of capital. Why would you put that much effort in? Literally, I think we're the only church in the country who has the model we do. I said, because we so treasure the idea that we're yours to explore. And you might come in the door and say, listen, if I come to a church where people make me stand up and sing, I don't like that, I'm not coming back, and that's not going to help me grow spiritually. I want to come and sit and, and, and take it in. I don't want to stand up. I'm not ready for communion. I'm not ready to see people raising their hands because that's weird. Other of you would say, well, why don't we come to the exploring service and when do we take communion? When do we get to stand up and sing those great songs of faith? And I say every week. That's Saturday at 4.30 and Sunday at 8.50. And the reason we put all those efforts in is because we treasure an environment to help you wherever you are with your friends invite people to environments where they can grow. Our strategies, our mission flows out of what we treasure. And I'd say the same thing. When you find yourself saying something you know you shouldn't say, you really got to do the hard work. And there's no way around it to figure out what are you treasuring here more than God and his grace. 
Third, words are the fuel gauges of the heart's tank. (laughs) Which means when you find stuff coming out of your mouth that you don't necessarily aren't particularly proud of, it's usually indication that you're on E in some area. Have you ever noticed that when you're tired, you're crabby? Or how about this? Have you ever noticed your spouse is crabby when they're tired? Or your kids are crabby when they're tired? It's much easier to see in others than in yourself. But it's true. When your tank is low, what comes out of your mouth is proportionate. And Jesus says, it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And when you have abundance in your heart, abundance comes out of your mouth. When you have scarcity in your mouth, you probably have scarcity in your heart. Again, referencing that passage in Deuteronomy, when you're really serving God, understanding the grace of God in your life, you understand that everything you have comes from his abundance. So if that's true, then let me tell you again the main message of the Bible and why it's an engine to your words. The Bible says when words start coming out of your mouth, start indicating you may not be operating out of abundance, you need to, again, step back and reflect on what God's done for you. Let's take patience, for example. How patient has God been with you? Think about your last 20, 30, 40 years. All the dumb things you've done, the dumb things you've thought, The times you abandoned him, ignored him, questioned him. And you pull out your list of the things that God's patient with you on. If you look mine. And you start reflecting on, oh my goodness, God has been so patient with me. And as you reflect on that, your heart gets filled up with, wow, God's been very, very patient with me. And your tank gets filled up when you begin to reflect on his patience with you. Then, when you have a son or daughter or spouse or, or, or boss or colleague that's not particularly worthy of patience, nobody's ever worthy of patience, by the way. You don't go, you know, I think, I think they're, they're finally worth me being patient. That hardly ever happens. Instead, you go, because God's been so patient with me and I'm so filled up with his patience, I'll extend the overflow of that to somebody else. When you recognize God's forgiven you so much, then you can go and forgive somebody else. Do they deserve to be forgiven? Of course not. They don't deserve to be forgiven. But because you're filled up with God's forgiveness, out of the abundance of that, you can forgive. God's mercy, not giving you what you deserve. And when you're tempted to give somebody what they deserve and tell it how it is and put them in their place, you're reminded that God didn't always put you in your place and didn't give you what you deserved. And out of the mercy-filled-up tank of God, you're able to go and do that for others. That's your spiritual tanks, your emotional tanks. It's even your physical tanks. I did a series a couple years ago about Elijah, who's a prophet who went through a very severe depression. It's like a four-week series on depression, if you're interested. It's called Playing With Fire on our website. He's very, very depressed. He's sitting in a cave. He comes out and God says, an angel says, God has a word for you, Elijah. You're depressed. You're worn out. You're thinking bad thoughts. Here's what you need. What do I need? The angel says, you need a nap. Gives him a nap. He wakes up. Angel says, God's got a word for you, Elijah. Time for another nap. Because when your physical tanks are low, what comes out of your mouth 
isn't coming out of abundance. Then God makes him a cake. It's a fascinating passage in First Kings 18 where God makes him a cake. God is great. Makes him a chocolate cake. He has this cake. He's getting his physical tanks filled. And his, his friendship tanks are low. So God brings him a buddy called Elisha and fills him up. How are your spiritual tanks? How are your emotional tanks? How are your physical tanks these days? Are you filling them up? See, a mouth problem is really a heart problem. And change is going to require some really heart work. So let's reflect back on these three aspects of Jesus and how we can apply it. How do we do the really heart work we need to see this as an inside problem, not an external problem? First, check your emotions. Check the roots. When you find a disproportionate amount of energy coming to a situation that it's worth a response, but not as much as I'm giving, go check what's driving this. Anger? Fear? Status? Performance? My need for pleasure? My need for power? Again, it's much easier to see this in your spouse than in you, in your kids than in you, in your parents than you. Here's an example. Friends are coming over. Family's coming to visit. It's time to clean the house. And so you're getting yelled at for, for the, the pace at which you're cleaning, the quality at which you're cleaning. And you're, you're like, why is this such a big deal? And your spouse says, I have the gift of hospitality. And we got to invite people over so they feel welcome. Wow. I, does the gift of hospitality apply to me? I, uh... And you can see that cleaning is important, but the amount of emotion related to this Seems out of proportion. Why? Because you know that what's really driving this is your mom is going to check the dust and I'm going to be evaluating whether I'm worthy of being your spouse based on what happens when people walk in the door. Or if they're not doing it to me, I'm doing it to myself. If I don't clean well enough because of what happened in my past, good or bad, I define my worth based on how clean the house is. When you're so stressed out, your kid's disobedience, check your emotions. Are you fearful? I often will parent my kids differently. When I see my, my weaknesses in them, I put a whole lot more emotion. It's like I'm trying to fix myself. Or if I see my spouse's weaknesses in them, I'm really doubling down on, you really got to fix this, it drives me crazy. I'm trying to help your future spouse here. Oh man, this is not really loving here, is it? This is me punishing myself. So when you see emotions that are out of proportion to the situation, which is hard to see, by the way. Everybody around you can see it, but you can't. You've got to check the roots. Secondly, your inputs. Check your tanks. How filled up are those physical, emotional, and spiritual tanks? And I tell you, the greatest problem in America today is that we don't leave enough space and margin and rest to keep our tanks full. Like an engine, God designed your body, your heart, to operate on a mixture of gas and air. You try and run your car and you shut down the air and just put gas in it. You cannot run the engine without a mixture of gas and air. You need that margin. The oil tank, you can't fill the oil tank all the way up. It needs the air in there to circulate. My dad was selling a minibike when he was like, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 and this thing ran really great and he couldn't wait to make the sale so he's kind of polishing it up washing it up to get the most amount of money out of it the buyer was on his way and a buddy came over from next door he said hey i'm just finishing this thing up i'm going to sell this thing today could you help me sure i just swapped out the oil drained it could you fill it back up and i'm going to go and put on a new gas tank so he does that my dad goes over the garage gets whatever he needed puts it on the mini bike did you get the oil got it got it locked it all down 
the buyer shows up. Gets on the mini bike. Takes it for a drive. Oil starts coming out of the engine everywhere. It's getting all over his clothes, getting all of the engine, coming out everywhere. So how was the run? Guy's covered in oil. I think I'll keep looking. My dad's like, what happened? He turned to his buddy. I thought you changed the oil. He said, I did. He goes, well, how full did you fill it? He said, well, I got a lawnmower business, just like my lawnmower. I filled it all the way to the top. Now, if you haven't, didn't have motorcycles growing up, a motorcycle, like a car, has a dipstick. You fill it to the top of the dipstick. But because he filled it all the way up, there was way too much oil. It was coming out everywhere. And many of us have done that with our schedules. There's no margin or air to think, to reflect, to emote. We don't save some margin to have time to emotionally connect with our kids or our spouse or even know ourselves. We don't have time to dig into our roots. We don't have time to trace our treasures. We just don't have time. We have filled it all to the max. And we wonder why what's coming out of our mouth isn't healthy. It's because we're not operating with that mix of rest and work that God gave us. So check your tanks. And lastly, check your treasures. Money. Money in your mouth reveal what you really treasure inside. And like I said, when we began our church, we really treasured the Bible. And we really treasured Jesus. And we felt like most times you came to church and you're bored out of your mind. I have no idea how to apply this. I don't even know what it means. It's just opaque. And we wanted to treasure the thing that God treasured. More than that, we wanted to align our treasures to what God treasures. How can I invest myself and my money to the things that God treasures? I'll tell you a story I heard this week. It's 1500. A man named William Tyndale was a scholar. And there was no such thing as an English translated Bible. None. None. He felt like he, if he'd given enough time, could translate the Bible, something that God treasured, his word, into English for the first time in history. The problem is the religious leaders of the day in 1500 did not want everybody having a copy of the Bible. Worse than that, there was a new technology had just been invented called the Gutenberg Press that was going to allow a translation to be mass-produced to the world. And they were trying to kill Tyndale. He was willing to do it, but where would he hide how would he get a salary? It would take him at least six months to translate it, which is pretty amazing he did it in six months. But we today, if you've ever held a Bible in your hand in English, you might have heard the name William Tyndale, maybe not, but he's pretty famous in, the, in religious circles. But the name you've probably never heard is the man behind the scenes, the man who financed the whole endeavor. His name was Humphrey Monmouth. He was a business owner. A business owner who said, I've made lots of money. How do I take my treasures and align it to what God treasures? He met William Tyndale and said, I will finance six months of you, your salary, six months of you hiding out in my house with my protection, your meals, your lodging. I want to become a gospel patron, somebody who finances the things that make a difference. And we're in a unique time in history where we can use the technological advances of the Gutenberg Press to make this available to everyone in the world. His name's not on it. He didn't get much credit for it. You've probably never heard of him. But this is the man, Humphrey Monmouth, the man who financed putting his treasures in line with what God treasures. 
That's what we did as a church. In fact, one of the reasons in the startup series we've been taking you through our history is to show you how our history has been a group of people trying to align their treasures to what God treasures. Having people learn about the Bible, learn about Jesus. In fact, one of the reasons we're trying to raise a million dollars is because we feel like we're at a technological moment in time where if you get on our website today, you can download MP3s of the message. Like MP3s, that's like 15-year-old, 20-year-old technology. You can't get access to video on our series. And so many people come in the door and they'll say, Chad, I listened to 10 messages before I came to the church. Many of you travel. I wish I could watch the service. So much of what you do is visual. So part of why we're trying to raise a million dollars is because we feel like what God treasures is the Bible. We know many people would say, I wish I could send a link to somebody. I wish I could get a condensed version of it. So the million dollars we're trying to raise is to put in a full video system so that we can actually have all of our services live streamed online. So you can send links to your friends, because usually it's four or five of those before they show up at our front door. We're also trying to create 20% capacity so that we have room for people. Because there's a rule in church growth that says once you reach 80%, which we're well over, the church stops growing. And we could say, hey, we're a successful church, way to go. we got four services. But we always have felt like reaching people and continuing to create space for people is important. So if you feel like you want to be a, a Humphrey Monmouth and use the technology available today to create new environments for people to learn and, and understand what God treasures. Because let me tell you a little, a little quick history. About 10 years ago, we gathered together here on this property, about 200 cars. And people often ask, like, who designed this building? And there was an architect, but who really designed the building was right here. We had a three-by-five poster board that was empty. We brought it out by the old lake. If you've never been to the old lake, it's right out here. And we started asking people, if we want a facility that facilitates what God's doing here, and that's what facilities do, what would we need? What tools would we need? We need a room, a family room for funerals where family can have some quiet moments together before they walk in for a funeral. And we put that post-it board, that post-it note up on the board that day. We really want to have a creative experience where we can have great music, even though we're not going to be in a fine arts auditorium anymore. We really want to have a chapel with a steeple that looks like a church, but a sanctuary that feels very sacred. We really want to create children's space that's compelling and draws people in. And we literally put these post-it board notes up here. Two years later, having given this to the, to the architect, almost every idea brainstormed that day out by the lake is in our building today. We could walk around the building and say, yep, that came from that meeting, that came from that meeting. We so treasured everybody helps out that the building was designed by everybody. More than that... We were at Cincinnati Country Day School for an awful lot of years. Some of you may recognize this painting. If you don't, when you come in the door, just look up the stairs. It hangs there. It's been hanging there for seven years. This painting was painted at our last service at Cincinnati Country Day while I spoke about the nativity. As I spoke, Mark Teskin, the painter, told a Christmas story. It started off with a big black path, and right about here was the three wise men who were traveling. He then created the bottom, what is now Jesus' beard. This was Jesus in the nativity, sitting in, in the manger. You can still see the outline of Jesus. And this was Mary, and this was Joseph leaning over Jesus. And as I began to speak about the kind of Jesus who could bring meaning and purpose in your life, he slowly painted and transformed a nativity scene into the face of Jesus. It was to remind everyone who had gave for two years, made pledges for four years, who had invested, served, helped out in children's ministry for all those years. Every time they see this painting as they walk up to our administrative office, that they were part of the first phase of Horizon's work 
work of treasuring and aligning their treasures to what God did. At the end of the service that day, we wanted everyone to make a mark. And so we pulled out this canvas, and everyone who came that day could sign it. We still have it. We originally were going to put it on the back of the painting, but the dimensions were a little bit different, so we just kept them both. Ten years ago, ten years ago, people who gave and served and treasured said, I want to be part of a facility that facilitates more people experiencing the grace and the love and the forgiveness that I've had here. I came to church and I'm believing in God. And now I have found incredible purpose and I call myself a Christian. You know, I still don't call myself a Christian, but I'm learning things I've never learned before. And I love coming to a place I understand what's going on. And in one sense, the, the legacy of our church has been a legacy of people saying, God's helping me out. We're yours to explore. Maybe he can help you out too. And this next song really speaks to something we have found. It may not be what you found yet but that Jesus can be everything you want and everything you need to transform your life and help you, not just with your mouth problem, but with the source of the mouth problem, the heart problem as well. Listen to these words together. Maybe you would say, hey, I've heard about Jesus, but I'm not sure I've ever really received him in my life. I, I do need somebody who can say stuff at the right time to take control of my life because I'm not saying stuff at the right time. Or maybe you'd call yourself a Christian, but something has taken over the root of your life, your status, your performance, your appearance, and it's been driving what you say. Let me just lead us in a prayer. And just ask God to take control, not of your mouth, to take control of your heart. And in doing so, take control of your mouth. Let's pray together. Father, maybe you want to admit, God, I'm sorry for the things that come out of my mouth this week. Toward people I serve or say I love. God, I need help. God, I admit, I thought I had a mouth problem. But I agree with you, I got a heart problem. I invite you to come and forgive me for what I've said. But I need your leadership. Will you come and lead the way I speak? Will you come and help me change my heart to a place of security so I'm not so defensive? God, help me speak words of life into those around me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last thing as we leave today, one of the things that also we began as a church from the very beginning is we want to be givers. People who gave here, near, and far. And so we certainly do that. You heard about teams going down to Belize. You'll hear next week about a team to Cancun. But we have some needs in our immediate area. With the flood that happened last week, we've partnered with Interparish Ministries to help those who've been flooded out of their homes. So if you leave today, you want to grab one of these blue bags. Inside the blue bag is a list of cleaning supplies needed for homes and such and some uh, non-perishable goods that are needed. So if you could be part again, we as a community don't want to be inward focused. We want to be outward focused, place for our friends, helping the community. Grab one of these blue bags, fill that up, bring it back next week, or some of the needs are a lot more uh, timely than that. You can bring these bags back to the church Monday through Friday as well with the kind of supplies that are needed. So if you please want to do that so we can be a real help to those who are, who are hurting because of the flood here in our area. Lastly, we have Easter services beginning uh, here soon, and we're going to make tickets available starting today 
there are six services. We have a lot of spring breaks happening this year, so we're able to go down from seven to six. Six identical Easter services are held on Saturday, March 31st, 4 p.m. and 5 p.m. And Sunday, we're going to have 8.50, 10, 11, 10. We'll add a fourth service at 12.20, which will also have brunch that day, complimentary brunch if you go to 12.20. You do need tickets for those services. They are complimentary, but they do make sure we have a spot for everybody. You can get those out by the fireplace after the service today. Also, we have East Station's annual Easter egg hunt on the Saturday service. That's at 4 p.m. and 5 p.m. as well. So you come to the 4 p.m., then go to the 5 p.m. service, or vice versa. We're going to have, again, our helicopter. If you haven't been here before with your kids or grandkids, it's fantastic. We have a helicopter that flies in, drops Easter eggs, thousands of Easter eggs down. Everybody comes and opens their Easter eggs together. And then this year, we're also going to have a petting zoo. And so you can bring together, and some animals there, some small ones, uh, you, know, uh, you know, tigers and lions and bears. No, there's a, a rabbits and some chicks and things like that that you can uh, participate in. So tickets for um, the Easter services and the Easter egg hunt are available down by the fireplace. You'll see a big display up there, and the blue bags are available just as you come out by the front door at our information desk. Thanks for being here. See you next week for our last week of Startup. Thanks again.